All right, let me pray for us, and we will get into the text. Father, thank you again for this unbelievable privilege and honor that we have to gather together as your people, uh, to be shaped by your word, to be conformed into the likeness of your Son. And we ask that in the moments we have this morning, you you shake us free, you shake our souls free from the dust and the cobwebs that have accumulated throughout the week, from the distractions that have sought our attention and sought our passions and sought our desires. And we ask that you reorder our soul, you reorder our senses, you reorder our desires. Lord, change us in the midst of your word. Change us as we listen to your word. Help us to surrender ourselves to your word. Lord, we want to be conformed into the image of your son, that we live lives that bring you glory and you honor, and we receive joy. We ask this in the name of your precious son who gave himself up for this to become a reality. Amen. We are in the midst of a series here. Um, If you've been around for the last few weeks or if you're a guest this week, uh, that's called In This City for the Nations. But we're talking about the implications of God's calling and ordering of his church. We're talking about the implications of what he has said about his church in the scripture and how that shapes who we are and what we do and why we do the particular things that we do the way that we do it. What are some of the motivations that we have? How do we understand ourselves as being called together by God? What does the scripture say about the church and how we're to understand our identity as his people? Uh, We're taking a few weeks to unpack what scripture says about that and then talk about how we're working that out in this local church, in this city, for God's glory and for the nations. And and so last week, Chris did a brilliant job um, as I listened to the majority of it. So I'll listen to the end of it and I might retract that statement. Um, But... Other emails said it was good. Um, Unpacking one of the ways that Scripture portrays how we're brought together as God's people by the gospel and are to live together as a family. We are a people brought together by God through the gospel who are to live together as a family, not seeking to live for our own desires, but because of what God has done for us in Jesus, we live not for ourselves, but for Him and for His will and His wants and, and His desires. And this is really one of the things that plagues us as a church in this culture and in this time. Uh, For the most part, most people see the church as a purveyor of of spiritual goods and, and services. For the most part, the 21st century American culture sees the church as a competition between places that offer particular goods and particular services. And so instead of developing a heart for God's purpose and his, and his plan for his people in this place, we develop a critical spirit and a judgmental eye bouncing around from place to place trying to discern which thing offers the best thing for the best price for our needs. Contrary to seeing ourselves as a people or as a family brought together by God's grace and through his son, we see the church as a place that's a competition between weekly dog and pony shows trying to gather our attention and produce an experience in our soul in the midst of a moment that will meet a need that we particularly value as important to us. And until we find the place that does that the best, we just seem to isolate ourselves from what God's doing in this time until we find the place that offers the best good for the best price that meets the need that I feel is greatest to me at this time in my life. And contrary to that, Scripture portrays the church in some radically mind-shifting ways. And one of the ways that Scripture pictures the church is as a family, as brothers and sisters united by Christ through the gospel who are to live together serving one another for God's purpose in one another's lives. 
We are somehow, by God's grace, responsible for the growth and maturity of the person sitting next to you. We tend to have this idea that maturation and growth in the gospel and in the Christian life is best left up to professionals, however we define that. But when we understand who we are by the gospel as family, we begin to see that we're to live for God's purposes in one another's lives. And so if you weren't here last week, go back and, and listen to Chris's message. This week we're going to move on and talk about another way that the scriptures portray the, the identity and the purpose of the church. You see, we don't just tend to, tend to have this idea that the church is just a purveyor of, of goods and services that we're to sift through until we find the one that we like. We also tend to see the church in this culture, in this place, as a, as a location or a place where we come and change takes place. The church is this place where you go if you want to be changed or if you want transformation to take place. And, and there's an element of truth in that. We do believe that under the right preaching of the word, the right understanding of God's scripture and the gospel that it proclaims, in the midst of hearing that message, you can and will be changed by God's spirit in that place and in that moment. But that is not simply what the church is. The church is not just simply a place where we're to gather as many people as we can by whatever means necessary to bring them into this place where this is where change happens. If we can just gather them into these metal chairs in between these light curtains and for this right time on Sunday, if the weather's right and there's nothing else to do and we can get them here, then they'll be changed. Instead, scripture, scripture tends to portray the church as not just a place where change happens but as a community of passionate, vibrant, effective people who are instruments of change, of change in the place that God sends them, in the place that God places them. It's a, it's a subtle but unbelievably important shift. The church is not just a place where change happens, but the church is a people who are instruments of change in the places that God sends them, in the places that God puts them. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You were there for part of the time last week. We're going to be there the whole time this week. Bear with me as I'm having to to drink a lot this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. Let's read them and then we'll, uh, we'll ease our way through them. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, this is going to be key. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this passage, Paul portrays how the church begins to function as a community of vibrant and passionate people who are instruments of change, instruments of transformation in the places that God puts them. And if we're going to be shaped as a church by this calling, by this passage, by this understanding of of how God sees his church, then we're going to have to understand a couple of things out of 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to have to understand what an ambassador is and what the implications of being an ambassador are. And then we're going to have to look at this text and look at some of the distinctives or characteristics of being an ambassador that Paul actually unpacks. But first, foundation. What's an ambassador? It's not an idea that's foreign to probably anybody in here, but an ambassador is a person who is sent to a foreign land by a king to represent that king or that nation in his place. So when a king wants to represent his interests or his agenda or his purposes in another land, he takes a person and he sends them to that land as his ambassador. That person who is in this foreign land then speaks on behalf of the king. Everything that they say, everything that they do, their purposes, their plans, their agendas, their motivations for what they do are to be seen as those of exactly what the king would do if he was there. An ambassador is someone who represents the purpose and the authority and the plans of a king. In fact, in Scripture, I think it's Philippians 3, where Paul tells the church that our citizenship now as Christians is in heaven. So before we're Americans, we're actually citizens of another kingdom. We're actually foreigners in this land serving, as Paul says, as God's ambassadors. So what we're going to see is that everything that we do Everything that we say, the agendas that we live with, and the motivations for those things in our life, where God has us right now, are to reflect his purposes, his plans, his agendas, and his motivations for his glory. Is that how you see your life? Is that how you see your purpose? Is that how you see what God has called you to be? Is that how you understand the role and the function of the church, to be a community of ambassadors? representing the agendas and the purposes and the passions and the motivations of the king. Two, well, let's go three, implications of what it means to be an ambassador that we're going to look at before we look at some of the characteristics. One, being an ambassador is a lifestyle. It's not just a job. You never actually clock in and out as an ambassador. It's not a a 40-hour-a-week job. There's not a moment when you serve as an ambassador, that you're not serving as a representative of the king. It's a lifestyle. All that you do and say and why is to represent the purposes of that king who sent you there. So what this means is that how you actually love your wife, how you actually love your kids, how you actually live with your neighbors, how you actually do your job, how you actually spend your time, how you actually spend your money, in some way or another are meant to reflect the purposes and agenda that the king who sent you here would want for those things. You are ambassadors in those relationships and in those situations sent to reflect God's purposes for those things. Is that how you understand your role in your marriage? How you understand your life on your campus or on your team? Is that how you understand your role in parenting and raising your kids? See, the reality of it is we tend to have this 
formalistic idea of what we call ministry or what would fit into this role of being an ambassador. And we like to think that we step out of our normal life into ministry. And in little episodes, we represent what God would want or what God would say in certain situations in life, and we serve that role, and then we step back into our normal life. And we see being an ambassador, being a representative of Christ and his purposes as something that isn't part of our normal life. It's just something we do on occasion, for the most of us reluctantly, when we're pressed into it by someone's crisis or circumstance when they come to us. We tend to think that being this representative is best left up to those who are the professionals, those who stand up on Sunday, those who have some particular role or office in the local church, when instead Paul says that because of Christ and what he has done for us in the gospel, we are now all ambassadors of his. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's not something that you simply step out of your normal life and your normal routine in. You're to see all of your relationships, all of your circumstances, and all of your situations as opportunities to best represent the plans and the will of the king who put you there, who sent you here, who's changed you, and who, as we'll see in a minute, has made you new. How, then, do you make your decisions? Are you aware of God's agenda for your family? Are you aware of God's purposes and God's plans for the things that he has given you in this life? Are you aware of God's plans and his purposes for the neighbors that he's put next to you? Are you aware of God's plans and his purposes for the other people who live in your dorm? Are you aware of his plans and his purposes for the families who are on that soccer team with your kids? Are you aware of God's call on you to be his ambassadors where he has placed you and in the places that he has placed you? Do you understand this to be a lifestyle or is, or is being an ambassador or or engaging in things that we call ministry seen as something that you step out of your normal life into for short periods of time, successfully or unsuccessfully. Implication one, being an ambassador is a lifestyle, not a job. (coughs) Excuse me. Two, being an ambassador means that your life is not your own. Your responsibility as an ambassador is to represent the priorities and motivations of the king. Your life is lived to represent his agenda. Your life is lived to represent his passions. Your life is not lived as an ambassador to represent your purposes and your agenda for what you want in this particular circumstance. That's the tough one. That's the tough one because if we're all really honest, uh, deep down we would all prefer to be many kings or at least co-king with God. But recognizing our call as ambassadors, as individual Christians, and as a church means that we are also recognizing our need to die to our desire to be the king, to set the agenda, to determine the purpose. Being being an ambassador means that your life is no longer your own. And so the question that you have to begin to ask yourself in your life and and in your relationships and in the circumstances you find yourself in is not what do I need to do to be most fulfilled or what do I need to do to make myself the happiest? What you need to actually begin to ask yourself when you think about your role as an ambassador in your relationships and marriage and home and job is what will best represent the purposes and will of the king in this moment? What will best represent the passions and the plans and the will of the king in this relationship. 
What will best represent who he is and what he wants for this person? That's the question that you have to begin to ask yourself as an ambassador. You're not the king. Your life is not your own. You don't get to step out and step into this thing. You live to represent his will and his plans. Three, being an ambassador is not optional. It's not optional. You don't get to opt out of it. You don't get to say, I like family. I might like servants. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, I like child of God. I don't like ambassador. So I'm just not going to do that. What Paul said, and we'll unpack it here in just a second, is that by virtue of the gospel and by virtue of God's work through Jesus, saving you from yourself, lifting your soul from the dead, making you an absolutely new creation, he has made you and called you an unbelievable sense of irony, an ambassador. Those who were at one time most estranged from God, those who at one time had the most enmity with God, he has now brought you to himself and given you this call to go represent his grace and his mercy to the rest of the world. It's not optional. So as an ambassador, this is not a job that you serve. It's a lifestyle that you live. You've got to die to your desire to be the king because your life is not your own. You live for his purposes and his plans and his will. And it's not an option. It's not a weight that you can shift yourself out from under. We're really good at finding ways to take burdens and weights off of ourselves and sliding out and trying to set them aside, but this is something that you can't get out from under. This is what God has done when he's called us to himself and made us his people. So those are the three things that we've got to understand about an ambassador. This is what God is calling us to do. Now, in this text, Paul unpacks and explains in some of the most dense and beautiful ways three characteristics of the lifestyle of an ambassador. Three distinctives or things that must make up an ambassador who represents God's plans, God's purposes, and God's passions. So go back, verse 14. We'll start up there, and we're just going to work our way verse by verse. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. First thing that we see in 2 Corinthians 5 is that the lifestyle of an ambassador is one that's to be characterized as gospel-centered, centered on the message and the truth and the reality of the gospel. This means that what God has done for us in Jesus and the realities of the gospel are the controlling aspect, the motivating desire, the character-forming realities of who we are to determine what we do and how we live. This is what Paul had to say. First way that Paul will summarize the gospel in this passage is this. One has died for all, and therefore all have died. Dense. What does he mean? One has died for all, and therefore all have died. So the center of his understanding of who he is as an ambassador and how he's to live is centered on this reality, that that one somewhere has died, and therefore all have died. 
what Paul is talking about is the atoning life and death and, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ who, who came and in his life, he lived the life that God created us to live. We talk about this every week. You're gonna memorize this and chant it back to me at some point. I'm gonna be so excited when you do. That Jesus came and he lived the life that God created us to live. God created us to, to serve him and love him and to live in dependence upon him. And as we found him satisfying in all of his ways and in all of his character, we would be overjoyed with who he is for us and he would get glory as we depended upon him for everything. But in an unbelievable turn, we chose to find satisfaction not in who he is and who he was and what he has done, but we decided to find satisfaction in ourselves and what he had created Instead of being satisfied in him, we tried to find satisfaction in what he made. Instead of finding satisfaction in his provision for us, we tried to figure out how to provide for ourselves. In an unbelievable turn of just absolute disregard, we chose to turn our backs upon God and try to fulfill the desires that he had given us, try to fulfill them ourselves. We tried to be self-satisfied. We tried to find the worth and the value that God had created us to find in him in ourselves. And we were never created to be able to satisfy that desire and satisfy that sense of, of need. Instead of leaving us to ourselves in that unbelievably horrible situation, having sinned against him and deserving of his judgment towards us and his punishment for that disregard, he did not leave us simply in that to face his judgment one day. He actually came. He actually entered into the wreck that our disregard of him caused in this world. And he came and he took on flesh, Paul said in Philippians, and took on the form of a servant. And he came in Jesus and lived the life that God had created us to live in the very beginning. And then he willingly laid himself down, Paul said, as a servant on the cross, dying to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead. The life of disregard for who he is and what he's done. The life of disregard, trying to find satisfaction in ourselves and in the things that he created. And in his sacrificial death on that cross, taking upon himself the judgment and the wrath of God for our life of sin, he died for all. So that when we put our trust and our hope in his sacrifice on our behalf, we in one sense would die to that former life of sin, that former life of self-centeredness, that former life of disregard for God and who he was, that former life of sin in our soul would die with him. This is the central message of the gospel that we had unpacked for weeks before we started this series. This is the central controlling reality for Paul and the central controlling reality and hope for anyone who is called by God as his own who is set in this place to be an ambassador. We must be convinced of this, that one has died and therefore all have died. Why? And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And here's the end of it because of who he is and what he has done in him, dying in our place and our placing our hope in him, sacrificing himself and taking God's wrath upon himself in our place, God then offers us Jesus' perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect joy, his perfect worship, so that God now looks at us and he doesn't see us in our sin and he doesn't see us in our disregard. He sees us in Jesus' perfect obedience and perfect righteousness. And now that old self, that old life had died on that cross with Jesus. And now God has given us a new life that we'll see in a minute, a life that now lives not for ourselves. It doesn't seek to find its joy and its worth and its passion in our own ability to generate it, but it has a new taste and a new desire to live not, not for me, 
Not for what I can get for myself. Not for what I can get from you for me to make me happy, but we live now for him who for our sake died and, and was raised. This is the central reality of the gospel, that God saved us from ourselves. He saved us from our self-centeredness. He saved us from our absolutely myopic view of life and passion and joy, and he rescued us from that, and he recreated our soul. He made us alive then with Christ. This is the central message of the gospel. This is the motivating, controlling reality in Paul's life. This is the first characteristic of one who is called as an ambassador for God. Our lives, our church, our, our community must at first be centered on the gospel. How we understand who we are and how we live, not for ourselves, but for him, and what that looks like as it plays itself out in our homes and in our jobs and in our communities and at our schools is to be worked through the lens of understanding who we are because of what he has done. All that we understand ourselves to do, all that we tend to put our energies into must be shaped first and foremost by an understanding of the gospel. The first thing that Paul says about an ambassador is that he's got to be gospel-centered and he no longer lives for himself but he lives for him who, for their sake, was died and was raised. Second, the other thing that gets born out of this conviction, this characteristic of being gospel-centered, is that this understanding of who Paul is and how he's to live his life and who we are and how we're to live no longer for ourselves but for Christ begins to shape and begins to mold and begins to transform the way that we understand who we are but the way that we look at other people. The way that we actually understand others gets changed by this central controlling reality of the gospel. Look at, look at verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Actually, therefore, I skipped over it, is a great word because it ties it back to that central reality of the gospel. Because of the work of the gospel being the central controlling reality in our heart changing us, we now no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The second conviction that, that begins to work itself out in the life of an ambassador is not just being gospel-centered, but now it's being grace-driven. The gospel changes the way that we understand who we are and how we understand everyone else in this place, in this world, in the relationships that God has given us. In fact, in thinking about this text and this passage, I couldn't help but remember the realities of of Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul said, before we actually came to Christ, before we were actually saved, before we were actually rescued by Christ, we were spiritually dead. But because of the gospel, God not only transformed our being, Our old self and our sinful nature not only died and was crucified with Christ, but God made us spiritually alive. We didn't just stay dead. Before we were saved and rescued and transformed by Jesus, we were spiritually dead and and flatlined. But God has brought us to life. And when he brought us to life, he didn't just bring us back as better versions of ourselves. When our old nature died, when we placed our trust and our hope in Christ and what he did for us on the cross, and that old desire, that old nature to live for ourselves was crucified, was, was died and was buried, God did not just make us alive with him and just make us squeakier, cleaner versions of our old self. Paul actually says that when, when God made us alive with Christ, he actually made us new creations. If anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old is past, and behold, the new has come. We're not just better versions of our old self. We're actually absolutely new. And here's the thing. When the gospel begins to do this work upon someone, when the gospel begins to do this work in your hearts, when the gospel begins to rewire who you are, it does it from the inside out. It doesn't start with the outside. It begins to clean up all the things that you've done or places that you've been or clothes you wear or music you listen to or, or jobs you do or whatever it is on the outside. The gospel begins to do its work of transformation from the inside out. That old life centered on self, that old life centered on my desires and my needs and, and my wants, it gets crucified with Christ. And now this new heart, this new life, this new creation, God gives birth in our soul, has new desires and new wants and new passions, and they're no longer mine. They're his. They're his. They're his. And so this gospel takes away this old self-centered, this old me-focused desire and, and heart that was in me. And it not only makes me alive to Jesus, it makes me a new creation. And that new creation has new desires and new passions and new wants. And it does its work from, from the inside out. And we begin to understand who we are and how we begin to relate to the people around us in new ways. Paul says, once before this happened, before this transformation took place, before the gospel was the central reality in our soul and began to transform who we were, we regarded people according to the flesh. We once regarded other people and not just, I'll add, not just others. We actually regarded ourselves as well according to the flesh. And what Paul's talking about is we had this propensity to value people and evaluate people and put people into categories according to standards that our culture or the world had set in place or standards that we had put in place determining what we could get to, to, to satisfy our desires from other people. We actually have different ways that we judge people and value people. Your skill might be a little bit different than mine depending upon the, the social world and social circles you travel in. But before the gospel began to rearrange our souls, we had a way that we looked at people and evaluated their worth, evaluated their value to us, and, and unconsciously evaluated their worth here on the world as people. And don't act like you don't. Before the gospel began to transform who we were, we judged people according to standards that were not accurate. But they were standards that the world had communicated and we had bought into and we believed that were, that were right. And Paul was fully aware of this. This was a critique of Paul throughout his entire ministry that you'll find especially in his letters to the Corinthian church, him arguing and fighting back and forth because other teachers and, and other preachers and, and other philosophers and, and the Judaizers would come into these churches where Paul had been and they would say, Paul, Paul's gospel, Paul's message, uh, Paul's work it isn't worth your time, it isn't worth your faith, it isn't worth your trust. Look at him. Look at him. He's been beaten his body is a shell. He's a frail man. He's not a great speaker. Listen to how well we can articulate this idea, this value, this philosophy, and listen to Paul. He probably stumbles, probably stammers. He wasn't an eloquent speaker. And because of that, people would begin to judge his message and his person and his work and his ministry. And Paul said, not only did they do it to me, but that's not only the reality of his experience, but that's the way he used to see Christ. Prior to Jesus appearing to Paul and transforming him, prior to that moment when I, I have never experienced it, but maybe one of you will one day, Paul gets knocked off his donkey 
and comes face to face with the resurrected Christ and his life is no longer the same. His life is no longer the way it was prior to that experience. Paul had actually judged and valued Christ according to the flesh when by Paul's understandings of what the scriptures were teaching about the Messiah that was to come, he certainly wasn't going to die hanging on a tree. Of all the hope and all the promises that the people of Israel were waiting for, they were waiting for a Messiah who would come and deliver them from slavery to Rome and who would, who would reinstate their, their nationalistic hopes. And here is this man who comes and people believe he's the Messiah and he ends up crucified up on a tree, which is a cursed death to the Jewish people. And so Paul had spent his life as an adult, as a religious leader, terrorizing the Christian church, seeking to silence the church because before the gospel had done its work in his heart, before it had become the central reality in his soul, he spent his life judging others, including Christ and even himself according to the flesh, according to the worldly standards. But being grace-driven, because we've been centered and our, and our hearts are being changed from the inside out by the gospel, means that we are an ambassador of this message, an ambassador of this transformation, and we live with a, a confidence on one hand and a humility on the other because of the work of the gospel in our heart, because of the reality of the grace of God that's rewiring and reshaping who we are from the inside out. We can live with confidence because we know that when God sees us, he does not see us in our sin. He does not even see us the way that we see ourselves, but he sees us in Christ. When God looks down and sees us, he doesn't see us the way that we judge ourselves in our conscience, and he doesn't see us the way that other people look at us and evaluate us based on their standards. He sees us in his son, who lived a perfect life of worship before him, and who God raised from the dead, vindicating his sacrifice on our behalf. So we can actually live our life driven by the grace of God in the gospel, confident that God sees us in Christ, and it does not evaluate us according to our own standards. But at the same time, we can live with an unbelievably unspeakable humility because on the other hand, we recognize that all that has come from God because of grace, owing nothing to ourselves. That there was nothing that we could do to actually deserve or earn that favor, that forgiveness, that transformation, that reconciliation that we'll see in a minute. And so that we can live with other people, look at other people, relate with other people out of the grace that's been shown to us, which is an unbelievably powerful humility. We do not have the right or the capacity because of the gospel to evaluate other people and relate to other people according to the same scales and values that we used to. We are sinners who have been transformed by the grace of God in the gospel. Apart from that, I would be separated from God and do his judgment and wrath because of my sin, just like you. Unbelievable, unspeakable humility. At the same time, an unbelievable and powerful confidence. One keeps us away from an inferiority complex that tends to shy away and separate ourselves from others out of fear. The other keeps us from an unbelievably powerful superiority complex that judges other people and beats other people over the head with our own superiority. As ambassadors, we are to be centered upon this unbelievably unchanging eternal reality of the gospel that does its work on us from the inside out and shapes us in a confidence knowing the work and the grace and the power of God in our life and a humility that allows us to live and relate and express that grace to other people to actually be the ambassadors that God is calling us to be that's just two though there's a third characteristic of the life of an ambassador that Paul talks about 
And if you've been around here for uh, any period of time, you probably have caught on to the fact that the characteristics that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 are the same three characteristics that we tend to try to define who we are and what we do by. We talk about being a church, being a people that are gospel-centered, grace-driven, and thirdly, mission-minded. And this is what I think Paul's talking about in these last three verses. When we talk about being mission-minded, we're actually talking about a two-prong, two, prong's probably a good word, poker, a uh, two-prong reality. One is we're mindful. We're always mindful of the work of God in our lives, changing us and transforming us into the image of his son. We're always mindful that our transformation, our change, our being increasingly gospel-centered and our living increasingly grace-driven is the work of God in our life. Being mission-minded on the one hand means remembering that your life is God's mission, that God is at work making you into the image and the likeness of his son. He is acting to transform us. And listen to what Paul says in verse 18. All of this, all that he's talked about so far, the gospel-centered, the grace-driven life, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God reconciles us to him. We do not reconcile ourselves to God. This is one aspect of understanding what it means to be mission-minded. God is the one who takes the initiative with us. God is the one who steps into action with us. God is the one that reconciles us to himself, making himself the center of his purposes. We do not reconcile ourselves to God, thus making ourselves the initiator and ourselves the center of his purposes. God has acted upon us through Christ so that we could be reconciled to him, and he is acting in us by his his Holy Spirit to transform us into the image of Christ, that we could be ambassadors for him, we'll see in a minute, appealing to those around us, be reconciled, be transformed, be changed. God is working in us. He took initiative to us. He is the one changing us. That's one side of what it means to be mission-minded. The other side is that God uses his people to implement and proclaim reconciliation in the world. This is what has probably caught my mind and my attention the most as I've read this over the past few weeks. As I've thought about my disregard for God for so much of my life, as I thought about my distance from God because of my sin, as I recognize the sin that I still fight, that still remains in me, in the way that I live, and in the way that I love, and because of that sin, the do right that God would have to, to judge me. But in his mercy, in his mercy, Paul said, he, he, he no longer, because of Christ, counts those sins against me. And because of what he has done in Christ, taking our sin upon himself, taking the judgment of that sin upon himself, exhausting God's wrath and judgment upon himself in my place, my trust in that 
sacrifice, in that substitute on my behalf. God no longer counts my sins against me. And now he has called me into his initiative, into his mission, into his work of reconciling others to himself. As I think about, as I think about my disregard towards him for so long and try to settle in on the reality that I who have been reconciled to God am now being sent out as a reconciler. That God in his mercy would entrust that responsibility to me, to the church, to his people. It's become absolutely overwhelming. So I begin to think through the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the patience of God. We who were at one time enemies of the cross, we who at one time judged Christ like Paul according to the flesh, we who at one time saw the message of the gospel as a stumbling block, as foolishness, God has now entrusted into us the reconciled, the ministry of reconciliation. He has now called us his ambassadors, sent us to the place we find ourselves in this city for his glory, for the nations, to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Unbelievably humbling calling. He has taken those who were at one time his enemies and he has reconciled them to himself and he's now called us his children. And he has given us the ministry that he initiated and saved us through to go and be ambassadors who would live in such a way that our lives would make an appeal to others to be reconciled to God. What we do, what we say, the passions we have, and the motivations for them as ambassadors are to represent his purpose, his plans, and his will for his creation. And he has taken those of us who were separated from him and he has reconciled us to himself, and he has put us in this place to live that life. We've got to understand, as individuals and as a church, is that our lives, and not simply just the words we speak, but our lives will appeal to something. People will look at our lives, our passions, our motivations, the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we spend, the way that we live. And all that we do makes an appeal to something. And as we understand what it means to be gospel-centered, as our, as our souls become increasingly characterized by the transforming realities of the gospel, as our lives become driven not simply by our own purposes and our own passions, but by the grace of God, and as we begin to understand his work in us, are humbled by it and confident in it, what we can expect to see is our lives proclaiming an appeal to the people around us. Be reconciled to the one thing that can bring us hope, the one thing that can bring us joy, the one thing that can bring us satisfaction, the one thing that can bring us purpose, the one thing that can bring us passion. Be reconciled to God. But you've got to understand you're appealing to something. What you do and how you do it is proclaiming a message to those around you. You've got to think, what is it appealing people to? When people look at you, if I were to stick your life up on a video screen up here and play it on the projector and we were to watch it, and I sat back and said, what does your, what does your life call out an appeal to? Where does your life 
appeal to hope? Where does your life proclaim happiness and joy and security is found? Would it be in the one who has reconciled us to himself, who no longer counts our sins against us, who has raised us from the dead and has given us new hearts and new souls and made us absolutely new creations, who has called us his own? Does your life appeal to the great realities of who God is in the gospel? Does your life live no longer for itself? but for him who died and gave himself up for you, that's what our life is to appeal to. We are to make a proclamation, not only with our mouths, but with our lives, that hope and joy and reconciliation is found not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, but in him, in Christ, in the one who came and did what we could not do for ourselves and saved us from ourselves for his glory and has now placed us in this city in this place, to be his ambassadors in this time for him and for the nations ultimately. Is that what your life is making an appeal to? I believe that if Paul were here today, he could probably explain this a whole lot more clearly than I could, but I think he would stand up here and he would, with all that he had, make an appeal that you be reconciled to God and that you understand as a church And as a people, that your responsibility and your calling by God is to not just gather into this place with the expectation that here is the place where everything happens, but that you would understand because of what God has done for us in Christ and the shaping and power of the gospel, you are to be an ambassador to this great message, to this great grace, to this powerful reality in the places where God has sent you. And I feel like he would make that appeal as strongly and as boldly as he could, and he'd stand there and, and he'd look at you and he'd go to the next slide, read verse 20. Therefore, because of the gospel, because our sins are no longer counted against us, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him sin to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the hope that transforms lives. That is the hope that motivates churches. That is the reality that shapes the purpose and the plans that by God's grace we put our hands to as a people. In spite of your sin, you can be forgiven. In spite of your sin, you can be saved. In spite of your sin, you can be made right with God before God and you can live not by being measured by the culture's evaluation of you, but you can live being measured by God looking at you through his son. Verse 21, for our sake he made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, this is the foundation. This is the way, this is how we can actually be reconciled to God and live as ambassadors for God. The church is not simply a place where change happens, but it's to be a community of ambassadors, instruments of change, reconciliation and transformation in God's hands in this city for his glory. As you go this morning, I want you to think, where 
Where has God placed you? In this time, in this place, as his ambassador. Is this the way you understand how you are to live, how you are to love, how you are to relate to others? Is this understand how you understand your role in your marriage, in your family, in your job? Where has God placed you in this city as his ambassadors? <coughs> Let me pray for us. Father, we have such a small and truncated view of what you have done for us in Christ. Wake us up to the realities and the grand nature and the glorious nature of your good news, of your gospel that changes us, transforms us, rewires us from the inside out, and then calls us to be ambassadors. Lord, help us to see where in our life we do not live for you. Help us to see where we have tried to live for our agenda, where our purpose, our plans have become the focus of our lives. Lord, help our hearts to resonate with this desire to be ambassadors for you in the place that you have sent us. Help us to begin to ask the questions in our lives, what would best represent you here? What would best fulfill your purpose here? What is your agenda for this relationship here? What is your agenda for this person? What is your agenda for this place? How can I be your ambassador here? Let those questions begin to shape our hearts. Let them begin to shape our lives. Let us not veer off to the side and try to figure out how to take from those things to provide for ourselves, but help us to begin to see how as ambassadors we serve your purposes in those places. Shape our view of this calling. Shape our view of the church. Lord, and help us by your grace to become a people who are instruments of reconciliation and change in this city. And we ask these things that your name will be made much of here, that your glory will be made much of in this city. Amen.